0: Hello and welcome to another episode of What Comes Next, a show all about the technologies that will shape your future. I'm Rob Kellner.
1: I'm Amy Dickens.
0: And I'm Kwaku akon Hi guys, how's it going?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Classic. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. Oh God, I just choked on my smoothie.
0: (laughs) What's in your smoothie?
1: In my smoothie is um, Let's play. oat milk and uh, red berries and protein powder, because I'm an athlete. <laughs> and uh, and, and I think that, Oh, and a little bit of uh, c- 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 cacao. Cacao. Uh,
0: right, this is like a miracle ingredient,
1: right? Is it? Yeah? I just like chocolate. Cacao. And it feels like a cheaty way to have chocolate. It's like it's rich in
2: antioxidants or like it's got some
0: sort of...
1: Yeah, that's exactly why I put it in there. (laughs) It's
2: supposed to have some kind of um, aphrodisiac qualities as well. Cocoa nibs are supposed to be very powerful um, and like used in lots of ancient medicines and things. So there you go.
1: You heard it here first.
0: So we've got a miracle smoothie. Kweku's on green tea as always. Yes, peppermint tea. We we should tell
2: people... Is this peppermint tea? What's the usual? Uh what as in like how much of this stuff am I drinking? Yeah. <laughs> uh embarrassingly, like I've got I've I've developed this weird addiction. So it's I'm reckon I'm on about fifteen cups a day at the moment. Oh my god. Three of which could quite easily be um <laughs> three of which could quite easily be before work and one is usually in the shower. So this like, is... it's proper, yeah. Something oh my god. something's gone on there. <laughs> so I think something's gone on yeah. there, yeah. But you would know. I mean, <laughs> like you must have been there. But it's weird though because like I, I decided to like get rid of like normal tea out of my diet because I thought it was like very very bad for you constantly having caffeine. So I thought, okay, well i will get rid of that entirely. Also, I didn't want to be drinking dairy all the time as well. So I thought, okay, I'll just do herbal tea started on minty and i've never looked back <laughs> <laughs> full-on like addiction it's so like a hundred <laughs> there
1: there are worse addictions so yeah. like i yeah, say yeah. Roll but there are it. also a
2: lot more fun ones though so it's like uh, what, what the hell's who going on says here
1: minty isn't fun
2: yeah oh certainly not me 15 <laughs> cups a day <laughs>
0: On this episode of What Comes Next, we're looking at one of the most important places, one of the most important theatres, even, where we as a society come together to ask ourselves what the future holds fiction. 37 years ago, the original Blade Runner was released. It's a dystopic, neo noir drama. It's setting a brutal, neon lit Los Angeles in November 2019, the month and date this episode was recorded. In the years since, Blade Runner's gloomy but tantalizing aesthetic has become visually synonymous with a future gone wrong. Like many great works of science fiction, Blade Runner's extraordinary context has become a mechanism through which we ask ourselves important questions about our ordinary humanity. It forewarns us of problems we often fail to imagine in our ceaseless quest for the new and exciting. But does this influence of science and dystopian fiction carry its own risks? Can these well-told tales scare us away from important progress? That's what we're going to discuss today. Obviously, we'll be talking a lot about Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049 the sequel, and a bunch of other science fiction movies and novels. So if you're worried about spoilers, maybe give this episode a miss. we have kind of brushed on every episode so far and we'll talk about a lot in the future which is uh, science fiction and its influence on yes. how we think about kind of the technologies of what comes next and the technologies that will influence and kind of create the future by far one of the most culturally influential pieces of science fiction futurism is if you want if you want to call it that is blade runner which is obviously an incredible sci-fi epic and it was made in 1982 by Ridley Scott 37 years ago and it was set in November 2019. So this is the month and the year that we're recording this episode.
1: Welcome to the future.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Hello, the 80s. You finally arrived. (laughs) For me also, I'm a a huge dystopian science fiction fan. Mm. And for me, it's the pinnacle of dystopian science fiction. I don't know what you think. You're a big sci-fi fan as well.
1: I'm a huge sci-fi fan. I'm actually not such a fan of dystopian science fiction. I've read a lot of the old classics. I love weighing in on the the Huxley-Orwell debate, which is what I plan to talk about today um, so sort of the difference between they're both dystopian but one is very much uh, kill yourselves by pleasure and one is kill yourself through pain or control through pleasure Ooh, con- control yeah. through pain but I really enjoy the sci-fi that's that's a little I, I like this the more modern sci-fi the stuff that's a little bit more out there it's a little bit more realistic maybe not re- maybe realistic's not the right word. But yeah, dystopian. Don't get me wrong; I love a post-apocalyptic book, but dystopian sci-fi, I think, is probably not one I'm super super knowledgeable about.
0: Would you? That's interesting. Would you? You'd separate post-apocalyptic and dystopian? Yeah. Mm, Interesting. Well, because
1: post-apocalyptic doesn't necessarily mean sci-fi,
0: right? Because also sci-fi gets bundled in with basically anything set after the date, right? Anything that is set. You know, more than a year in the future, yeah. or something like that. right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. I've always sort of, I've always bundled them together, post-apocalyptic <laughs> and, and dystopian. But well, I suppose like, look different. you look yeah. at
1: the Hunger Games. Like a lot of YA, I think is is post-apocalyptic, right? Um, right? So, Hunger Games, not really an apocalypse, but it's it's a futuristic story. It's sort of a very much a dystopian future, but it's not it's not sci-fi.
2: Well, so, where are we drawing the line then? Because that that's to me is like kind of aside from the fact that it's. A, very commercial kind of adventure action kind of movie to me that's like yeah pretty much quintessential sci-fi No, is it because they have that that very future tech uh, yeah. s- uh, like dome system that they all play the actual yeah. game within
1: so so for me science fiction is When a book or a story is is primarily focused around science, like I I would say The Hunger Games, although it incorporates technology, I wouldn't call it sci-fi. I would call it YA more than anything or dystopian. I mean, there are easy wins for sci-fi. So you've got books like William Gibson's Neuromancer and you've got things like, yes, Ender's Game we were talking about earlier or orson scott card um but yeah i think there's definitely a strange line where it's something that's happening on this planet it's a feasible future i mean even 1984 it is lumped in with sci-fi but it is probably more accurately dystopian I don't know if that's the point of this conversation, but yeah. I think it is now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: It's, useful, I know, it's useful to draw the line because they are different categories, but they also serve similar purposes, right? Like, yeah. Or they can do at times because you can also have dystopian sci fi that you can, you can kind of merge the two. Mm-hmm. And I think dystopia has a particular agenda. It's a warning. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Whereas sci fi, it, it can be much more positive than that. And mm-hmm. if you think of, like, so Star Trek, um, like the sort of classic utopic sci-fi all like kind of the main sort of uh, sci-fi fictional series universe it's very positive mm. and it but it's it's and it's very science fiction but it's also interesting I think that we were so we were speaking to a company recently who find it really difficult to use the f- use the phrase artificial intelligence in any of their sort of branding or marketing materials mm-hmm. anytime they talk about themselves. Because it's become so... Sort of,
2: yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: it's become it's become completely sort of politically charged, emotionally charged. Um, and that has become a sort of uh, hugely negative word. And and, it, and this is because of science fiction, right? It's become... It's like the, the Terminator is the thing that they most fear, right? So every time they bring up the word AI, people's minds instantly drift to Terminator... Positive of that is we know or
1: replicants what's... to bring it back to to Blade Runner,
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. To bring it back, that's absolutely true. Yeah, you. But but also both films where you talk about you know AI in a negative context, right? Mm. The Matrix you can easily chuck in there. There are so many where the AI is either abused to the point of of um, social disharmony or the cause of huge human pain. The benefit of that is we have a sort of yeah we we have an understanding of what could go wrong and therefore maybe an ability to prevent it. But on the other hand genuine benevolent attempts to use ai are really struggling because this, this is uh, the term that you can't use anymore most
2: yeah I, th- I think like for sure the um the sort of misinformation skynet kind of model that, right uh, that we all i suppose grew up with is definitely part to blame for that but then at the same time i think you would struggle to find completely benevolent uses of ai uh right now so it's like misinformation and then misuse is is the kind of modern-day PR problem that Mm. AI has. So when I think of AI now, I think of mass data collection and analytics and marketing companies that are basically going to sell you things more effectively, perhaps Mm. things that you don't want, sway your opinion, et cetera, et cetera. And the thing is, because the resources required to develop AI are so scarce i suppose or held in the hands of so few it's very very easy for it to be painted into the corner of like this thing is going to be the bad guy at some point Mm. because we know we kind of have or at least i think a lot of people have an understanding that utilization of this technology is going to be so powerful um so sort of omnipotent that it really could be quite binary whether it's for good or for bad and if you look around you at the way that technology is uh, being utilized and being manipulated then you you know you, there's a hell of a lot of technologies out there that aren't being used for societal good and i think that people are afraid of both of those things mm. having said that my dad is definitely worried that robots are coming at some point <laughs> <laughs> like we evil terminator robots i think so yeah do you think
0: though having such a sort of present pressing view a negative view of ai is is a positive thing then if you think that actually It's such a potential. It potentially is a very dangerous technology in the wrong hands, or even accidentally. You know, in the right hands, it could be used accidentally to create a lot of damage. Is it a good thing that through science fiction we develop this impression of AI, like a warning system? Mm, Right. Yeah. Like that. It's that. It's but that it's specifically the AI. It's we think of it more negatively than positively. I think in a lot of cases. Is that true? Here's an interesting example: Data in Star Trek. Right. One of the sort of the heroes of the show. One of the main cast. At no point, as far as I remember, is he referred to as an AI, right? Or mm. well, the term AI isn't used for him. He's, you know, an android. I know these are really similar things, but in terms of just the, 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 the phrase AI, when I think of AI and uses of AI... I think of the Matrix when uh, mm. and there's sort of that beautiful expositional scene where Morpheus explains to Neo what happened and mm. what's gone wrong. I think of AI, the Spielberg movie with, um, yeah, this kid who kind of, Angelosman, you know, exactly, <laughs> yeah, Haley Joel Osment, I forget <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, has this kind of, you know, e- even though he's not necessarily e- sort of he's not in any way evil, he goes through this kind of like really difficult experience. I can't th- like so I can't think of a, a time in in fiction at all where AI has had a sort of positive impression where the word has been used in a positive context.
1: Yeah, I, I think that I I'm just my brain is is worrying here because there are there are definitely positive examples in in literature and in film. But you're right, they're never referred to as AI. Cause you look at like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and you have Marvin, the robot, and he's actually he's a he's a character that you empathize with and you you learn to love and throughout the journey throughout that book this is a character you really feel for similarly i mean we just in the office last week we just had an interstellar watching party and you get the tars character which is a character you love and you empathize with it's a machine but you know there are no spoilers but there are parts where you you know you really feel this kind of emotional attachment to this machine mm. So I think there's definitely examples out there. There's plenty of examples of um, AI where you feel this kind of human connection with them as the viewer, as the reader. But you're right. They never are actually referred to really as AI, Mm. which is, is doing damage to the reputation of AI, I think.
0: And there's also, I think, yeah, and I think part of that, the examples we've named of the sort of the benevolent AI characters... They're all anthropomorphized, right? Whereas, like the evil intelligences are without for, or formless, right? So, the, the, yeah, the kind of the yeah the typical evil AI controls and manipulates things, but doesn't usually have a form. Hmm. Whereas the good guys, it's the you know, faceless baddie, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's it's sort of you know it's like demonic for it. right? It's the evil spirit kind of hmm. kind of deal. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting of whether or not that that level of Anxiety over the term AI has, you know, could even hold us back in terms of our ability to or have discussions about AI and also accept AI as as something that that, that could have a really beneficial use.
2: Yeah, for sure. I guess the the the, the issue here is that some people, some very smart people, uh, consider AI to be a potential existential threat to humanity. Right. I remember going to a UCL lecture um, a l- long time ago with... Um, I think it was one of the founders of Skype.
1: Oh, yes, I was there.
2: Yeah, That yeah. was like two years ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um,
1: That was really cool.
2: Such a cool guy. And one of the things that he was saying was about this anthropomorphizing of AI. It was one of the, the biggest misrepresentations that, that he could kind of think of. And he said that... I roughly remember the quote, but he was basically saying... When people think of AI, they think of the glowing red eyes of the ter- of the Terminator. But what they should probably think about is a increasingly a growing vacuum around the planet Earth, which is expanding at the speed of light into the unknown universe and harvesting um, and harvesting natural resources to replicate itself as it goes. Wow. <laughs> it's like right okay, okay. When, and when you think about that you can understand why people don't put it into movies because it's such a kind of conceptual head fuck the, the other thing that, that that guy said that was particularly kind of entertained by was his uh, his idea of you know Kurzweil talks a lot about this utopian potentially utopian future where we basically obtain superpowers and this guy was basically saying that yes the um the AI, the superintelligence may have these, you know, incredible powers that it could bestow upon people. Mm. But if it's killed all of the people with any consciousness or it killed all the beings with any consciousness in order to get there, he said it would be like Disneyland without the children, which I thought was like wow. the creepiest <laughs> like <laughs> horrible version of the future I could think of. It's yeah. so horrible. But um yeah, it's uh it's some interesting stuff. It really is, yeah.
1: What do you guys, because I think we're all fairly sci-fi fans uh, standing around I thought room, I so. wasn't until
2: you guys started speaking. <laughs> I'm like, Geez, can I get some general knowledge questions,
1: do you? Is there anything that you guys have like remembered from, from let's, let's just call it sci-fi slash dystopian, from your childhood or from recent times? Is there anything you've read or seen that you were really hoping would exist now that doesn't exist now?
0: Flying cars, one hundred percent. I mean, yeah, flying whatever you want to call it f- form of personal transport. Back to the
1: future route you're going down here.
0: Back, to, I mean, or oh, fifth the,
1: element route, really.
0: Back to the future, fifth element, uh, Blade Runner again. You know that yeah. the 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 the, um, the spinners. Uh, yeah, definitely. I've constantly had dreams. In fact, the first time I saw it was in a show called was it Morph, where they where um, it was it was I'm not sure it was Morph. It was, it was a, I think it was called Pod. It was a kids show where basically a a, a young a young kid stumbles across this i think alien with a with a spaceship Mm -hmm. and basically the kid reassembles or finds the missing piece of the spaceship so it'll work and it's like i think it's the joystick whatever and it's just scattered somewhere else puts it in and then can just fly around his hometown Mm -hmm. in this spaceship and i was like this is all i want and
2: that hasn't changed (laughs) (laughs) it's just never arrived i mean yeah the uh the back to the future hoverboard but then Lexus have got very close, like oh, very, yeah. very, very close. This is closer. the one
1: that has to hover above a magnet.
2: What they've created is like so close. It um, is amazing, you're right? Yeah, yeah it's it is, is, it is it is really, really cool. But it actually um,
0: floats. It's not like it's not because the hoverboard with those wheelie yeah, things yeah, so yeah, yeah. have wheels, which is really yeah. But
2: but this is like genuinely a hoverboard. Yeah. yeah, but true magnetic skate park. So you know, Oh, was it swings around about it. Uh, okay.
1: I think with sci-fi and what we're depicting in the future, a lot of the time what we're depicting is... For me, I feel like it's very negative. I guess we were we touched on this a little bit earlier in, in the kind of dystopian literature. But I, lo- I love things like... I absolutely adored Andy Weir's book, The Martian, because for me, that was a sci-fi book that was futuristic and very, very positive in the sense of it's like it's about humans going to Mars and it's this step forward. And it was very scientific. And for me, I, I don't know how useful it is to constantly be bad, because I feel like what we've got now is a human race who's afraid of technology and AI and um, advancements and maybe rightfully so. But yeah, I I quite enjoy when I come across something that's a bit more of a positive spin on tech and the future. Mm, Maybe I'm an idealist.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's really interesting. I think like, yes, we are afraid of technology and its potential, but I think we are way more ambitious with it than we are fearful. Otherwise, you know, Moore's law wouldn't work right now we wouldn't see the world changing at the speed that it is so there's obviously something that's outstripping that mm. that fearfulness
1: curiosity
2: right yeah 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 in which case you can see which
1: killed the cat might i, <laughs> might I remind you guys
2: of course <laughs> it was curiosity all along
0: <laughs> but you, yeah you can see it then as sci-fi being or or this particular branch of um dystopian sci-fi of which Blade Runner is very much a part, and Westworld, that it's maybe it's just an opposing force that it sort of it counterbalances things like curiosity, um, profitability of these technologies. Yep. Right? That there is there is uh, certain there are certain forces driving the evolution of technology, and there are certain forces helping to shape where that goes. And I think that if you in the interplay between companies and innovators and perhaps kind of um what we decide as a society is culturally pressing or socially pressing that's once those two meet in a place that's constructive right that's benevolent it helps everybody ideally as much as possible and it's but what do we need what information do we need or motivation do we need as a society in order to have that conversation what do we need to bring to the table in the case of ai maybe it's we've gone too far and AI is a good I think AI is a, just a useful example there are lots of other examples too but AI is I think a useful example where we say actually you know when a company says right we're developing this this kind of this sort of particular AI at least there are these sort of this set of common cultural reference points we can draw on and say well actually if you don't if you know if we're not careful this is where it could go um, and I think that's of course, quite a useful thing to have
2: mm. yeah for sure I, I, it's, it's making me think of how um, how assimilated we are to the the age in which we are born right like if we look at dystopic views of the future i mean like 1984 is a perfect example right it's even now it's like terrifying to us but we've kind of crept into a not that dissimilar place or we've you know we're hurtling towards it very very quickly um and at what cost to kind of you know download this app for free and give you information here there and everywhere mm-hmm. you know um and i think at the same time if we look back we also see things that we would find horrific like, oh my god i'm glad that i didn't live like back in the cold war or you know any any other number of um mm. uh, uh, of, of eras right but um if you look at if you look at the technology that we have today, and I would imagine that somebody who was living 50 years ago, yes, there'd be things that, you know, they'd be glad to be out of, and there'd be things that they'd be absolutely amazed by. But I wonder how many of the things that we take for granted today, they'd think were absolutely horrific. Mm. Like if, mm. if you, were, you know, if you, um, were you took someone from 50 years ago and plunked them in, in, um, you know, in an office today, they'd be they'd be wondering what this screen was in front of everyone that w- had some kind of hypnotic spell over them for eight hours a day they would wonder why people couldn't hold eye contact with each other mm. they'd wonder why when they spoke to people in the street people were very very standoffish with them so some of the kind of core um connections that happen between human beings those have been the costs of our um technological advancements of the last 50 years so i think like when we look forwards and we see all the things, oh my God, is it going to go too far? Yes, of course it will go too far and too far to us. But to those who are, you know, reaping the benefits of that, mm. it's going to be something quite different. Um, and at the same time, you know, they won't have some of the, or, you know, what we have left of uh one-to-one human interaction as we have it today. They might have something completely different, like the many, the connections, the network, it will mm. be something probably beyond our imagination in 50, 100 years' time.
1: I think that almost highlights the importance of sci-fi, actually, because when you are, like you say, when you're born into something and you just accept it as what you've grown up with, you don't question it as readily. And I think it takes something like reading 1984, like I just reread it again about three or four years ago, and... It honestly like it, it it this time reading it and going, oh, my God, like screens in your houses where people can just f- dial in and yeah. tell you to do exercise and they're watching <laughs> like I was sitting there going, oh, wait, this. Yeah, like I have this and I've just idly sat by and let it happen. And um so I do actually think sci-fi, when it's painting this kind of negative glum v- view of the future, probably does have a really important role in um, grounding the future generations in like, hey, this was considered not okay in the you know two generations before this, So maybe you should stop and ask a few questions around this.
2: Yeah, absolutely
0: I think that's I think that's absolutely right. So it's interesting, do you think if you were to if you were to write as best you could a non-biased account of your life today, and you and you gave it somehow magically to a person fifty years ago, maybe maybe a bit old, maybe a bit early, maybe sort of sixty seventy years ago, let's say forties, do you think they would view that as a piece of dystopian fiction?
2: Or do you think today yeah. is dystopic and would I think, be considered dystopic? It's an awesome question. I I think that. Um, I think that the, the person 50 years ago would be so amazed by what the internet is that that thing would like eclipse everything else.
0: Mm, interesting.
2: Or, or, the, or the vast majority of other things. Yes, they'd find certain parts of, um, of that story scary, but they'd be so fascinated with the idea that you have virtually every piece of written information that has ever existed in your pocket on demand that, that would be just absolutely unfathomable to them. Mm. You know, that it's yeah. like, it's like, you know, if somebody um, gave me a story about 50 years from now right. and the world was, you know, messed up in all sorts of different ways, but they had immortality. Right. A lot of my view of that world would be governed by, okay. The the whole concept of life has changed because of this. Yeah, and I still think that that the internet still, still amazes me today. You know, like I'm lucky enough and old enough to have lived on both sides of the fence. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. The, right? the yeah. analog side of your life, <laughs> right. <and the> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, me too. Yeah, yeah. Team analog. <laughs> <laughs> um and and I, I, it still amazes me And i think that people will look back on this point in time or this, this kind of span between non-internet and internet era is something that was just absolutely insane you know mm. you speak to your grandkids about that they're gonna be like what you have to go to a library and get books out that's mad mm. and now and th- this is still the early days of the internet as well right so I, I i genuinely believe that that would be the thing that they would kind of focus on I'm trying to think of... someone who's going to be listening to this thinking, you absolute idiot. Like, surely it's, you know, the state of um, world politics or surely it's, like, climate change. Surely it'd be those things that they would gravitate towards.
1: I'm not sure. I, I think every generation has... So I, even now being of this generation and being born with this technology mm. i ver it's kind of like what you were saying with the internet i very much have moments where i just i just go whoa and um, and like this is a really stupid example but um like a couple months ago i was standing on a train platform and it was like one of those high speed trains and it stopped and it opened its doors and i just stood there being like Oh my god! Like this, <laughs> this machine just appeared at like such a fast speed, and then its doors open automatically, and then I get on, and they close behind me automatically, and then I go speeding up to Scotland, and it's like four hours from London, and it was this. It was just one of these moments where I was like, I've literally done this train ride about thirty times in my life. But just this one time, I was like, this is the future. <laughs> and um, and that happens to me all the time. I mean, it happens when I look at my phone. And I, I I remember my dad, when he first bought me my first mobile phone, and he did buy me my first mobile phone because I was only about 17. It was like that old Nokia brick, the one that you could play yeah, the yeah, worm yeah. on. 30, 30, 10, 10. yeah. Yes. Uh. And I remember us joking, like we went out for dinner that night and, and my dad said like, oh, can you imagine, like, can you imagine one day just being able to see someone's face on the phone, like a video call? And I was like, oh, haha, that's hilarious. And like, so now whatever, like there are times when I make a video call and I just think... We were laughing at this not that long ago. I mean, it was not that long ago that I was 17, folks. So, yeah, I still get amazed by, by technology today. So I think definitely someone from 50 years ago would, would have quite a few things to be amazed yeah.
0: by. I had this interesting thought, though, that, that generally technology changes life. That it, 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 the technology changes life in sometimes a quite a superficial way. Uh, one of the interesting kind of uh, studies I read was that, um, that that basically people's commute time hasn't changed over the last mm. sort of hundred years, and actually, like people formulate. I mean, actually, with that being said, that sounds amazing, though, is not it? If your commute time hasn't changed and you're commuting forty miles away rather than you know three yeah. miles away, then that is amazing. I don't know. It was an interesting idea that that in the sense that like part of the I think I think. Um, there's something really interesting about flying cars in sci-fi, which is that they seem to be absolutely everywhere in every possible prediction of, you know, um, Space 1999, which is obviously about 1999, uh, Blade Runner about 2019, uh, The Jetsons, like all these TV shows said, yep, flying cars definitely on their way. And, and uh, then yeah. like nowhere near, like not, like not even close. The, but the, the reason I bring that up is that the idea would be, you know, you would, you would get in your car and zoom up in the air and you would get to work in like 30 seconds. But then you have the sort of fifth element model where there are just traffic jams in the sky and it yeah. still takes you half an hour to get to work. It's just you're in a flying car. And you would definitely have moments where you're like, you know, oh, crap, I'm in a flying car. But then also you're still like trudging your way to work. And, you know, it's almost like we can't help but have certain, we'll live certain ways.
1: But I, I also think that the cultural shift is partly responsible for the fact that we don't have flying cars. I'm not saying that without a cultural shift that we would be there technology-wise. Mm. But... I know right now, because I'm quite interested in urbanism and urban theory, and I do a lot of research around urbanism, urban design, architecture, blah, blah, blah. Um, there's a big shift now between reducing cars and the more like the sort of shared economy. So, right. you know, your things like your um, your car hires or your car shares, or obviously cycling and trying to build better cycling infrastructure. Um, more emphasis on public transit and that's coming along with the conversation on climate change and stuff like that too. So I think like with a lot of these futuristic um, assumptions, they were very much based around the, the thought that people are still going to hold the same cultural values in the future which and that's what interests me when we think of what's what comes next (laughs) pardon me um is like we can make all these assumptions about the technology but the cultural change will drive that so I want to know like culturally where are we going and what are our values going to be 50 years from now
0: this is uh I think I think you're so right I think that's incredibly I think that's really really interesting and it's something that um if you look at sci-fi's general formula is it's culture of the time plus new technology mm-hmm. equals question mark, right? That actually we, yeah. we're we very, um, or, or sci-fi tends to be, sci-fi, fu- futurism generally, you could argue, mm-hmm. more than just sort of fiction, but general sort of philosophizing about the way the world will change, tends to be quite behind on, on appreciating the, the way that things will change culturally. It's a fantastic article I read today by Toby Vanderbilt and Nautilus. And, and one of the sort of the quotes that he, he, he mentioned from a uh, a futurist was that if you look at all the imaginings of the workplace of today, 50 years ago, some of them had big computers, some of them had small computers, some of them had really advanced typewriters, that kind of thing. But none of them had women. Mm. And I thought that was really interesting. They, got, they thought, OK, it's just going to be the office, but with more technology. And what they didn't understand is, no, there's, there's all these social, there's all the social change that's mm. going to happen, mm-hmm. too. And we're just really bad at predicting that. So I think you're absolutely right. We're quite we're quite good at predicting certain technologies because, and this was also from the from the article, that certain technologies are inevitable. Driverless cars are inevitable because automation plus car, you know cars are going to exist, automation is going to exist. Put them together at some point, we will have it. And so, creating a a movie or a book where that's part of everyday life is it's not that big a leap of imagination. But the stuff about, like you say, the the sharing economy that's a much more complex idea. and We seem to be much worse at kind of imagining that ahead of time.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah. Like big conceptual ideas that are basically more sexy, like a flying car are something about, there's something about them that makes people want to go and see sci-fi movies as well. Like they want to see like the visual um, effects. The
1: wow effect. Yeah.
2: They don't necessarily want to like think about the fact that, Oh, well, we don't need flying cars because everyone has telepresence or it's actually just about remote working now. So this film's <laughs> just about some dude in a flat coding. <laughs> like, I guess. <laughs> Do you know what I mean?
1: I guess that's the same reason. We were talking earlier about how sci-fi always has this kind of negative uh, connotation of... of um, Technology or AI, and I guess it's the same thing. Like it's way more interesting for a viewer to go and watch Terminator, and there's this like robot destroying things rather than a film about like robots who are taking care of grannies in a care home. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, your cost per click has gone down (laughs) by (laughs) three (laughs) pence. Oh Oh, fucking whoopny doo! Yeah, blockbuster. Jesus. (laughs) C B C three B O.
0: (laughs) <laughs> just, just fifty of them, just trying to work out people's taxes. I
1: mean, as as an accountant, I'd quite like them to figure out taxes. <laughs> Thanks very much.
0: Just uh, thinking about the the kind of cultural change for and tying it back to uh, back to Blade Runner. Uh, and again, I've got a got to reference this this article nautilus which is fantastic and we'll 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 put it on our twitter and i'll put it in the uh, in the show notes as well but the quote about about blade runner and about kind of predicting the culture uh, predicting kind of cultural change is this the prescience of near future speculations like blade runner come less from uncannily predicting future technologies than in anticipating that new and old will be jarringly intermingled which i absolutely love as an idea that it's saying that It's going to be this sort of interesting hybrid between traditional values, you know, new cultural changes, technology. Not everything will be different. And it's going to be sort of life as we know it, life as we don't know it at the same time. And I just thought it was a really cool kind of tying up of the two things.
1: I think that's the reason why my favorite sci-fi author of all time is Ted Chang and his collection of short stories, which is called Stories of Your Life and Others is absolutely phenomenal and it's because his short stories in my opinion they are very much about the future and about different kinds of technologies but they are way more about the cultural element um so if any of you have seen the film arrival that's actually based on one of his short stories so it it is about language and how language defines a culture and how it defines the way we view everything around us and it's straight down to how we interpret time um so yeah, I think, mm-hmm. I think there is sci-fi out there that's doing a really good job at tackling the cultural and that's definitely, like, that's, that's my wheelhouse. <laughs> I love that stuff.
0: So we talked a lot about the predictive power or sometimes the non-predictive power of science fiction and dystopian fiction. But within that, we have a whole branch of erudite and important futurists and philosophers. This episode, we'd like to end on a quote by one of them.
2: Yeah, so this is um, Alan Watts in 1966 commenting on the future of technology. And I can only apologise for not having his amazing voice, so you'll have to imagine. Despite the fact that more accidents happen in the home than elsewhere, increasing efficiency of communication and of controlling human behavior can, instead of liberating us into the air like birds, fix us to the ground like toadstools. All information will come in by super realistic television and other electronic devices as yet in the planning stage or barely imagined. In one way this will enable the individual to extend himself anywhere without moving his body, even to distant regions of space. But this will be a new kind of individual, an individual with a colossal external nervous system reaching out into infinity. This electronic nervous system will be so interconnected that all individuals plugged in will tend to share the same thoughts, the same feelings, and the same experiences. There may be specialized types, just as there are specialized cells and organs in our body, but for the tendency will be for all individuals to coalesce into a single bioelectronic body. Consider the astonishing means now being made for snooping, the devices already used in offices, factories, stores, and on various lines of communication such as the mail and the telephone. Through the transistor and miniaturization techniques, these devices become ever more invisible and ever more sensitive to faint electrical impulses. The trend of all this is towards the end of individual privacy, to an extent where it may even be impossible to conceal one's thoughts. At the end of the line, no one is left with a mind of his own. There is just a vast and complex community mind, endowed perhaps, With such fantastic powers of control and prediction that it will already know its own future for years and years to come.
0: Thank you very much for listening to this episode of What Comes Next. Make sure you don't miss an episode by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or comments about today's show, or would like to discuss a cool technology that you're working on, then drop us an email. We're at wcn at The intro music for this episode was made by Patches, and the outro music was made by Puddle of Infinity. Thank you very much again for listening. See you next time.